matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer our replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. And I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and I've come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles, and at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to buy the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new list we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the 1925 uh, Chaplin classic, The Gold Rush, uh, a film which is the second of three Chaplins that we're going to get. Uh, we have already talked about modern times before, and so as is like the the tradition, I guess, at this point, I, I kind of... Um, I kind of don't feel like we have to talk too, too much about, about Chaplin. I feel like we got a lot of the social aspects of his work uh, the first time out, and we still have City Lights to go in the future, which I think of as being like kind of the, the purest distillation of, of Chaplin. So I'm, I'm going to go through the movie very, very quickly. Um, I'll just say that I think that out of all of the chaplains I've seen, and at this point I've seen all the major ones, that I, I think this is the best one. Um, like we said last time out, I think the, the top three kind of have to be in some order. The Gold Rush, City Lights, and Modern Times. Of course, they, they have it. City Lights first on this list, and then Gold Rush, and then Modern Times. Depending on what list you work off of, most of them have those in the top three. Um... I assume the Gold Rush is one that you've you've seen before. I assume that this is in your in your bag. Yeah, I love me some Chaplin. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about it more. I'm just always struck that right putting the <clears throat> putting the the, the tramp or figure in. The gold rush is like so rife for just utter absurdity and slapstick and physical humor. Um, there's a lot of pathos and a somberness to this movie, though, too. And um, I don't know. I, I think that's part of what makes Chaplin special. Like, it's not just insanity, um, but that there's always right a deeper emotional core there. Um, and yeah, you know, we talked about it. 
history and the social aspects a lot with modern times, but I think Gold Rush is doing a lot of similar stuff in that way. So that always strikes me, but go ahead. Yeah, this is a, a movie, and the thing that I've kind of keyed in on for this one is how much sadness I think there is in it. Um, I mean, obviously, the the Tramp character kind of functions as a as a carrier for a lot of human misery. I mean, it's, it's someone who is meant to be sympathetic for the little people. Um, and of course, the further we get into the depression, uh, when Chaplin kind of gets a, depending on how many wins you want to give him, kind of gets like a second or third wind. Um, when the tramp all of a sudden becomes not just, Oh, that's the, the destitute guy who I feel some sympathy for, but like, Oh my God, that's me. Uh, I think that there's, there's a lot of, of, you know, social meaning and and concern for the little guy that, that he always has. But I think something about setting this in such an inhospitable place um, and beginning the film with something that's really not all that jokey, like really giving us a sense of where these people were and like how terrifying it must have been to to be in that situation for the Klondike gold rush, even if you were hoping to strike it rich, which many of these people were, I mean, it, it's still terrifying. It's still the the elements are still an absolute barrier to any kind of normal life, uh, especially for people who were not personally, you know, living in the Klondike. These are people who came there um, from all walks of life and all over, all over America and all over further from there in the hopes of, of making a fortune and they were, it doesn't matter how prepared you think you are to, you know, to go in and do that. You're obviously not prepared for it. And I think that that level of, of, um, austerity and fear kind of trickles into this movie in a way that, you know, it, it clearly does in other chaplains, but this one I think is, is kind of special just because the, the physical setting of it is, is so bleak and so stark. This is the movie that has a number of my favorite Chaplin gags. I think that his um, he gets stuck in a cabin during a snowstorm with someone else, and this other person's a big guy. Uh, the the titles refer to him as as uh, Big Jim, as I recall, and Big Jim is very very hungry, and the Tramp character, who is referred to as the Lone Prospector. Um, is of course very hungry as well, but Big Jim starts to have hallucinations and starts hallucinating that the prospector is in fact a giant chicken, and he makes it his mission to track down, kill, and eat this chicken, and of course Charlie Chaplin's character has to <laughs> dodge this as best he can. It is about as funny as the threat of, ca- of uh, cannibalism can possibly be, I think, and that's that's one of the things about this which is so wonderful is that it does take these ideas which are, like, again, really disquieting and <laughs> really frightening and based in a lot of human misery. I mean, so many people who went on this particular gold rush died, like they didn't come home with anything, uh, let alone a profit. But there is something very, very dark and very, very funny about I have to escape the person I'm trapped in this shack with who thinks that I am a large, delicious bird or that scene where he eats his shoe, where he's, like, boiled his shoe and is daintily taking it apart and, like, slurping up the, the shoelaces like they're noodles. Like, it's 
it's an incredible sight gag, but just like the panache with which Chaplin does it really sells that scene. Um, obviously, you could go through the entire movie and sort of go step by step about what makes it funny and wonderful and, and well-conceived. Is there is there a... Oh, well, obviously there's the one at the end, which is like absolutely tremendous stunt work but other other than those three is there like a favorite you have or did i mention the the ones you like uh no you mentioned the ones i like uh i think yeah thinking back to that sadness mixed with the humor um right the sort of er, tragic comedy of the whole thing but just this right hunger starvation poverty very real dangerous somber things about the gold rush like the the reality of it much much more so than the like prospect of wealth um but to turn all of that into a series of like sight gags of just eating different things um that would become like the basis of not a small amount of like looney tune cartoons um or just a lot of the mid-century animated stuff in particular, like seeing another character as a giant chicken or like some piece of food and chasing that around or like being tricked into eating a shoe or something like that, right? Like those are, those become tropes, not just in a symbolic sense, but like in a very literal, like imagining things as a chicken or eating your shoe, like that. It's amazing how how well a lot of the stuff from Chaplin holds on, but particularly this movie, I think there's just so many images that carry through uh, through film history. Yeah, I I feel like I have to talk about the the final gag, which is this this incredibly creative sequence where the entire house that he's in with Big Jim has been like blown to the edge of a cliff. And so they don't know it at first. And so, like, they're like Chaplin's walking around, and like the entire thing is starting to tilt, and he's just like, Whoa, like, he's like, I must, something must have happened to me that I think this is happening. And eventually he looks outside, and in the game of physics that goes on inside the cabin, again, totally harrowing stuff. I mean, not like you expect anyone to to actually eat Charlie Chaplin or for him to be thrown off a cliff or anything, but like, it's. It's sort of scary to think about, but at the same time, sort of watching him sliding around and like, you know, hanging on for dear life as he as he and his partner um, get thrown around this this set is is very funny and like really brilliant physical comedy. Um, this is, I think, that sequence is maybe as close to Keaton as we get. Like, there's something very Keaton esque about about the the physics of a of an environment screwing around with that primarily for laughs or for the, the sort of shock and awe of all of it. Um, and that's, that's something which, which I've always been really impressed with. Um, the way that they created the set, the way that they conceived of the entire thing. Um, and I love how fake the little house looks in the movie, like the exterior shots make it look so terrible and fake. And I love how dingy that is. And then the inside is this this brilliantly put together um, like trap basically that these two people have to have to manage, and I've I've just always really appreciated that. So I've named my three favorite bits, um, or my three favorite 
sketches, I guess we'll call it, from the film. This is one that is super old. Uh, like I said, 1925. It's the third oldest movie that the AFI ever put on one of their top 100 lists, so the 98 and 2007 version. This is... I actually don't... As I'm as I'm looking at this, I don't remember... No, it was on the, the 98 list. It was 74 there, and then it jumped up to 58 here, which is kind of nice to see. It's nice to see a chaplain rise this much. He tends to do pretty well on the AFI list. They keep they keep bumping his his work up. So this one this one is the third oldest that they ever put on here. The old the other two that are older are both DW Griffith movies. So Birth of a Nation was on there in ninety eight, back when you could still put Birth of a Nation on one of these lists. And then um in two thousand seven they replaced Birth of a Nation almost to the spot. Uh, with Intolerance, which is a year later, and we will get to that in a couple episodes. But that's the that's my trivia about AFI. Uh, seeing Toby in the back of the shot reminds me of the... I know you're going to talk about the dance hall, or at least part of it, but there, there's a good doggo in this movie, and <laughs> the scene with him and, and the belt and the cat is... I'm, I'm fond of that one as well. It's very fun and cute. <laughs> Yeah, Chaplin, Chaplin with dogs always makes me smile. Um, I think my all-time favorite Chaplin with dog is is um, is the the 1918 I think a dog's tale in which he stuffs a dog in his pants at one point and like walks around with that and that's absolute chef's kiss material. But there is there is an incredible joke about like being so down and out that you have to tie a belt around yourself to keep your bad pants up um, and trying to impress a girl, but unfortunately you have made your belt a dog's leash and the dog, of course, wants to get the cat no matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're at home or in the Klondike. Um, I mean, this is sort of like Duck Soup, which we did a couple episodes ago. Like, it's, it's very much based on on these short vignettes, these small moments, and just, like, what makes this magic is that they all hit, and it doesn't, again, it really doesn't matter so much. Does this have a story? It has less of a story than Duck Soup. Does it matter? Not, not even a little. Um, on, like, this is a, this is a fairly short movie, and it's one that you can watch, um, you can watch on Wikipedia, which is one of my favorite genres of movie, which are so far in the public domain uh, that you can not only get to them on YouTube or, or Vimeo or something, but you can get to them on Wikipedia, and they're just attached to the article. Um, but it definitely it definitely holds up beautifully uh, into the present day. It's even the kind of movie that I think you can show people who don't watch silent stuff, and they'll still immediately, you know, latch onto it. I can say from experience, I, this is a a movie I showed to the to the movie club kids at, at the high school I work at, and they were a little a little skeptical about it, like, going in, but eventually they kind of got into it. Chaplin is too charismatic not to get into it. it it's just a, a very fun, very pleasant watch, um, you know, except for the incredible depiction of human misery within it. Theme for this week is the Oceana Roll, uh, which is the name of a of a dance, 
which shows up in this film. Uh, I, I use the word dance pretty loosely. But basically, the setting of this is that the prospector has met this girl that he really likes. Uh, her name is Georgia, and you know she's special because her name is in a special type whenever it shows up in the titles that nobody else is in. Um, and Georgia is not really interested in him. Um, in fact, no one is really interested in the pro and the, uh, the prospector. That's why he's the lone prospector. But he is kind of fooled into believing that she cares about him. And so he extracts a promise from her and her friends to come over to his little shack uh, for New Year's Eve for a special party that he'll throw. Uh, he spends his money to get food and, and everything for it, and he uh, works really hard to clean up and to get the money just to, to put this little party on. But before it can actually go down, he, he starts dreaming. He falls asleep. Um, and he dreams of himself doing a, a little dance for these, for these women who have come over to his little shack. Um, and he tells them, I'm going to perform what's called the Oceana Roll. And what he does is he takes two dinner rolls and he sticks a fork into the end of each one. And he makes them into little sticky legs with big feet. And then what he proceeds to do in this close shot is this little dance in which it looks like his head is basically the head and body for fork legs and, and roll shoes. And there are little kicks involved and it's, it's very beautifully choreographed. Like it's, it's a very, it's a very sweet little vaudeville number. And this is, this is emphatically my favorite part of the movie. It's, it's so simple and it's so endearing and so charming. And then at the very end, um, once he's, finished the dance uh he can like see the applause everybody starts clapping for him and you can see this incredibly genuine heartfelt grin on his face and i mean obviously chaplin a wonderful actor i'm sure he himself is not like in any special mood but like the prospector at that moment someone who has been al alone and when he's not been alone would have been much safer if he were alone um is at this moment sort of in the in a group of adoring people who think he's good for what he is, even if he's not spectacularly rich, even if he's just someone who can only make entertainment out of dinner rolls and forks. And he is so happy in that moment, and there's, there's something so incredibly sublime about it, um, this sort of ineffable quality, which you only get in the very best movies. And even then, like, you can watch a like a truly great movie, you can watch 10 of them and, and not have a moment that's quite that special. Something that really just sort of strikes you in that way. Something which is so beautiful and pure as all that. And it's something I look for in movies. I like watch for, for little Oceana roll moments is, is basically what I call them. So the films that we'll be discussing today are both uh, movies that I think have Oceana roll moments and I tried to stick with things that were that were more straight up positive. So I will say that I spent a lot of time second guessing myself on one of the slots for these, which is why I very briefly had the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in here. And I was just like, maybe, maybe not, maybe not for this one. <laughs> but the 
and I'm pretty sure you would want to talk about the ending scene of that movie. It's absolutely sublime and phenomenal. So, I'm sad. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre went away, even though it has the, the I don't know, they're both films. That's probably the extent of the connection between the Gold Rush and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and cannibalism, I guess? Cannibalism. I was about to say, cannibalism. Yeah, there's more than we thought. All right. So there are two things in common um, between <laughs> between those two. They are both movies, and they both have the, the threat of cannibalism. So I'll just say that this this is a broad topic. This is a very, um, this very wide range of movies that I considered for this. But I ended up going for things that I thought were just much more friendly. I do want to say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Great movie. Love that one. Uncomfortable. Great movie. Um, what's your favorite dance, Tim? Or, or which of these two? The Oceana Roll or the Bosphorus Hug? Um, well, I'll, I'll say this. I think the only one which I can really do justice to is the Oceana Roll. I think, I think the Bosphorus Hug requires a little bit more... Um, Rafe finesness than I than I necessarily possess. So I think I'll put it that way. That's fair. <laughs> so the first of the two movies is another black and white holiday classic. Um, instead of New Year's Eve, it's Christmas, and instead of the Klondike, it is Budapest. But the film in question is Ernst Lubitsch's The Shop Around the Corner, and then maybe a little bit less predictably. Uh, the second film was for a short four-year period, the highest-grossing film of all time, 1993's Jurassic Park uh, by Steven Spielberg. So I, I feel like I have still maybe subverted this slightly. It's not all, you know, hugs and kisses and everything. Uh, there's still no leather face, but continue. <laughs> so Shop Around the Corner... Um, if you are familiar with this one and you're not a classic movie buff, it is probably because you recognize it as the basis for You've Got Mail. Um, it's the the same plot. It is actively being riffed off of. It's the reason why Meg Ryan's character in that, in that film works at a bookshop called The Shop Around the Corner. They do not try to hide it from you. So I will not, you know, uh, belabor the plot too much. But basically, it's the story of two people in this sort of home goods kind of shop. Um, not really like a department store. It's much too small for that. Um, but they sell like personal items, things that you keep around the house. Uh, the two people in the, in the shop are Alfred Krolik and Clara Novak. Uh, Krolik is played by a young, handsome Jimmy Stewart. Not that he wasn't handsome when he was older, but, like, this is Jimmy Stewart when you're like, oh, well, that's Jimmy Stewart, you know, like, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, and the, his opposite number is played uh, by Margaret Sullivan, who, the two of them have, like, this interesting personal history as well, which I will not, like, get all the way into. Um, but Margaret Sullivan, whose who star shone very bright in the early mid forties and then sort of faded away was like, just not a happy person. Um, I don't think stardom was good for her. And Stuart was somebody who she like genuinely confided in. And I think that there's a level of that, of that honest chemistry between the two of them that makes this movie special. Um, it's a film where they don't get off on the right foot. Um, 
Kralik is a little big for his britches for somebody who works in a home goods shop in Budapest in the late 1930s. Um, he's very proud of himself uh, for being the top salesman at this company. He, he sort of prides himself on the good relationship he has with the store owner, uh, Mr. Matichek, who is played by Frank Morgan, who is, of course, uh, the wizard of The Wizard of Oz. Um, so it's it's sort of impossible not to see him in, in this, I guess, especially because by 1940, people had already seen him as the wizard. Um, but that same kind of, like, blustery feeling applies to him. We'll come back to him because I think he's very special to, to the picture. But Krolik is there when when Miss Novak tries to get a job the first time. He kind of rebuffs her, but she makes a good a good play, a good sale in front of Mr. Matichek, and he takes her on, and then the two of them are just sort of like cats and dogs um, throughout the rest of the, the film. What they don't know is that they are falling in love with each other without knowing it, because as romantic as I'm sure all of us think AIM is, or was, I guess, uh, it doesn't quite compare to having an anonymous pen pal who you, you share messages um, share messages through a shared post box with. And the two of them are writing each other without knowing it, and while they're in the store with each other, they are constantly just sort of sniping and, and barking at one another. Um, and of course, when they, they have some free time to, to write to each other, they're, you know, just completely blown away with how thoughtful and and interesting they are in their words. So eventually it comes to it. Um, they're supposed to meet at a at a cafe somewhere. Uh, they they've decided that they are going to take this next step and, and meet in person after having been pen pals for a little while. And so Krolik goes to the cafe with one of his co-workers, uh, Pirovich, who's played by Lubitsch regular, uh, Felix Broussard, who I have always kind of adored. Um, he is the person, who, for those of us who have been around a while, he's the one in To Be or Not To Be who keeps pulling out the, the Shylock monologue from Merchant of Venice, so he's that same guy, except he's got a mustache in this, which makes him just look a lot friendlier. Uh, he's going to the cafe with, with Krolik and... Krolik is like, okay, do you see the girl in there? She's supposed to have um, her copy of Anna Karenina. And, of course, Pirovich looks in there, and Krolik is, is asking questions like, is she pretty? And Pirovich replies, you know, she uh, she has the coloring of, of Clara. And, and to this, Krolik replies, why on earth are you bringing up that girl to me now? And... Pirovich says, well, if you don't like Miss Novak, I know you're not going to like this girl. <laughs> because that is Miss Novak in there. And at that point, Krolik is sort of crestfallen by this because he's imagined, you know, he's sort of halfway to marrying this girl in his head. And to find out that this person he's exerted all this effort on um, is the person who he has made his life's work to fight with at his job. Um that's that's an extremely disappointing result for him. And so he goes in there, um, not really sure what to make of things, pretends like he doesn't know why she's there. Um, and she throws some, some choice insults at him that he has an intellect like a lighter that doesn't work, uh, a handbag instead of a heart, 
and it's it's just not a good not a good moment. At this point, the the story kind of twists a little bit. We see more of the the developing troubles between between Krolik and and Clara. But what's interesting is that, and something which You've Got Mail does not have much to its detriment, I think, is that Krolik's boss, um, Matichek, thinks that Krolik is sleeping with his wife. He's gotten the impression that one of his associates at the store is, in fact, um, you know, cuckolding him. He's got the wrong guy. It is not Jimmy Stewart, but Joseph Schildkraut who is doing it, but he doesn't know that. So at one point he fires Krolik, and that's where things kind of diverge. But there's there's this very dark little turn in this story um, where Mr. Matichek has to be stopped by the shop boy from killing himself. Like, it's it's a very, it's a very sudden moment. Um, but the shop boy, Peppy, who is funny and, like, rolling funny in this movie, uh, just happens to come into the shop and, and the office when he sees Mr. Matichek, like, about to shoot himself, and he, he has to, like, stop him. And there's this, this real sort of, like, path, moment of pathos where you can sort of see the despair in what Krolik's best-case scenario is. Um, you know, you can sort of witness, like, if, if Krolik works at the store another 20, 25 years, or even if he, like, sets out on his own, will he ever be more than Matichek is right now? And Matichek is here, you know, in the, in the Christmas season with a home goods shop and a wife who's driving him to suicide. And this is, this is a, a very Lubitsch thing, I think, to, to sort of find the the darkness in a, in a funny story. Um, eventually, you know, everything is righted. The ship is righted. Um, Clara starts to, to get closer to her pen pal again because Krala can't stop himself from writing her still. He gets hired back at the store and we will get to the Oceana roll moment in the film I don't think this is one I have made you watch before, but this is definitely one of those movies I make people watch. This is this is a very dear personal favorite. You've not made me watch, nor have I seen um, that You've Got Mail comes out of this makes sense, though. Um, yeah, there's just something decidedly better about like an anonymous pen pal, or just a pen pal, than <laughs> AIM. God bless it. Um... I, I guess I'm interested too in the ways this one's connecting to the gold rush so far that um, like takes funny and makes it sad or takes sad and makes it funny. Um, so kind of that certainly not emotional manipulation, but just finding the depth in those situations or the kind of inherent uh, multivalent nature of those types of situations. So I like that connection so far, but yeah, talk to me about the Oceana role, which I hope is bread in all of them, but I know it's not. I guess it's something you can eat in all of them. We'll talk about it. I think in each case, it is something edible. Um, cannibalism all the way through. <laughs> just cannibalism as far as the eye can see. Could you? No, I guess Cannibal Holocaust is Italian, isn't it? I don't think that's a movie that I actually could have brought into this. No, I didn't think so. Okay, so back to this movie. At the end of the story, um, Krolik has basically written 
written Clara into believing that he is going to marry her. Um, and of course she is still buying that this is the pen pal guy, somebody who, um, who Jimmy Stewart says that he has found this guy and his name is Matthias Popkin. Um, and Matthias Popkin is fat, bald, doesn't have a job and intends to, intends to live off of her income. Uh, which is which is very funny. I think my favorite part of this is not actually any of that, but there's there's a line from his letter that she quotes about um, about angels, and Jimmy Stewart just looks at her and is like, "Oh, he stole that. That's from Victor Hugo." It's like it's such a good self own at that moment that it's just it's it's a very charming thing. I can see you thinking about Matthias Popkin. I just like that's. I mean, I'm sure the film, like, is knowing of what it's doing, but it's like, that's what comes out of a bad fan fiction that involves, like, Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> like, that's all I can think of right now. That name, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's really something. And I think, I think mostly it's just sort of, like, to butter her up for this particular news. Like, he sort of let her believe that, that he's got a girlfriend and he's going to propose to her over Christmas. And she's like, you know, I have this boyfriend and, you know, I think I'll... I'll be engaged by by uh, by the time the season is over as well, and and she lets him know beforehand that before she got involved with her letter writing buddy, um, she she had her sights set on him, and she was led astray by by a book about a glamorous actress or something, um, who treated men like dogs and then hoped that they would. They would like lick her hand, and she says, "Well, I'm not a glamorous actress, <laughs> and and instead of instead of licking my hand, you barked," um, which is a funny way to put it. But like, the chemistry between them is has been built up at this point. Eventually, he um, he takes her out into the store, basically, and she looks like she is you know, pretty bummed out that this guy who she thought is going to be this wonderful, brilliant husband is, is a fat, balding man who doesn't want to want to work. Um, and he, he turns it around a little bit. Um, he reveals in a line of dialogue the number of the letterbox um, that they've both been putting their letters into. And he's like, sort of holding her at that point, and she looks up at him with this, like, wondrous look in her eye. And then the Oceana Roll moment for me in this film is he takes this carnation out. It's this close-up of Stuart. You can see you can see Sullivan's head a little bit in the bottom left corner, but mostly you just see him head and shoulders. And when he went to the cafe, he was supposed to have this carnation uh, in his lapel as the signal. And at that moment, He's got this incredibly nervous, apprehensive look on his face. Like, he's not really sure what she's going to do. And he takes this carnation out and puts it in his lapel. And you can sort of, in this entirely silent moment, there's no music, there's there's nothing but his face and his carnation on the screen. And you can tell that he is hoping that that she'll forgive him all sorts of stuff at that moment that him pulling out this carnation and being vulnerable with her 
the same way that she was vulnerable with her copy of Anna Karenina in the cafe. And he sort of, he sort of walked all over it then. Um, it's, it's like its own little um, apology. It's like the first thing that he does in trying to set up a relationship is to say, I'm sorry. And to like ask her for forgiveness and to put himself in that vulnerable situation um, to sort of say, I love you enough that I am willing to let you hurt me the same way that I hurt you, if you so choose, that if you want to do that and now that you know, I am giving you the the opening to do that. And of course that doesn't happen, the two of them, you know, embrace, kiss, music, the end, etc. Um, but the, the thing about the movie that stands out is this moment that's like 45 seconds away um, from the final title card and, and has much more to do with this this very vulnerable, bald moment, um, which is, which is unlike what you see in so many romantic comedies, no matter when it is like, no matter what your, your style of romantic comedy is, if it's your, your 30s screwball or your, your nineties, um, canonical thing. It's it's just very rare to see a moment that's not played for laughs or not played as like a big moment. It's a very small touch. It's it's just a carnation, but the carnation itself, which I think is edible, um, just means so much at that precise moment. Uh, and the whole film kind of needs to nail it or it doesn't work. But the fact that that particular face that Stewart is making in that particular um, action with the carnation works. Um, it just makes the entire thing really lovely. Yeah. I was thinking about the, how similar yet different it sounds to pick a romantic comedy. Um, but it's not the, I don't want to say not the grand, not the grand, like physical gesture of the, like running through the airport or like, no, stop, don't be with that man, like, um, or, you know, another movie that we're going to pick on later, like, running into the wedding, um, but just something small that, to me, communicates even more, the same emotion and more, um, and just what you're saying about it being kind of a co-vulnerability there, rather than the, you know, the more again, grand gesture. That's like, I'm going to do this vulnerable thing, but then that's not going to be the basis of the connection. Really. It's just going to be the, like, I need to do this to make it, to make the world right or something like that. But, um, but it's not a relationship built on a shared vulnerability there or like that kind of deeper openness. Um, which I think is more realistic in a way and just more, profound really and then it stems from huh, stems from right the carnation and from Anna Karenina is um I don't, yeah I like that I, I like that as an Oceana role moment just something that we are so used to and probably a nerd to in a large degree but the simplicity of it and the, the generousness of it renders it anew yeah I think that's why that's why it's hard to do your your Oceana role properly in a movie just because it requires the simplicity that only great directors are, are really capable of like that ability to just like say, okay, less, less, less. This is the exact right amount. Let the audience do the rest of the work. And of course 
I mean, this is, it's even a dark room. Like, there's not even, like, special lighting going on. Like, it's its the shop where they work after dark. It is, like, the most humble, um, quiet little place. And the fact that it is relying entirely on one motion on the screen is, is really just a remarkable thing. And there's a reason, there's a reason, I think, why it is Chaplin, Lubitsch, and Spielberg, you know, who are the three people we're talking about here. Like, you have to be a certain caliber of, of filmmaker to pull this off. In any event, um, this is part of my my little mini Jimmy Stewart marathon that I always do around Christmas now between this and It's a Wonderful Life. Gotta get them both in. Um, and and this one is is somehow much more Christmassy, I think. Um, it feels good in a very different way. Jurassic Park? I just want to say Toe Pooper also belongs on that director's list for this as the shadow contestant. But continue, yes, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. So in my notes, um, the first thing I've got for it is dinosaurs ate everyone. That's what the ending should have been. That should have been the end of the series, too. I mean, I wouldn't have said no to that. I mean, (laughs) Jurassic Park, um, a movie that I came to much later than people um, my own age. It's It's a film which... I don't know. I think I think when I was when I was of an age to see it, it had kind it had not like passed exactly, but like you know, my parents cared about ratings. I'm pretty sure it's PG thirteen and everything, so I don't know that they would have they would have like let me see that until I was older anyway. Um, but there's, I mean, this was if if Titanic didn't exist, I think this would be the blockbuster of the '90s, um, and for good reason. Like, I think this is, I think this one is Steven Spielberg's best, which is not unheard of, but I realize this puts me on something of an island. Like, it's kind of like saying that Close Encounters is his best movie, except there are more people who say that than say that about Jurassic Park. Um, I mean, for me, it kind of comes down to to Raiders, which we talked about, and we talked about Spielberg a lot when we did that episode. Um, And... I sort of said then, like, I have my own, <laughs> like, Spielberg um, hot take about Jurassic Park, and I was saving this movie for much later until I realized that it really ends on that Oceana roll note. So if you were listening and you were one of the, I don't know, the majority of the members of the human race who have seen this movie, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I do just want to say that there are a lot of, there are a lot of things about this movie that just work so perfectly um that i feel like blockbusters today have kind of have kind of forgotten about and the analogy i used when i wrote about this movie like five years ago is the one i'm going to use here which is that in cape canaveral slash cape kennedy whatever you want to call it there is a building where they put together the spaceships it's called the vehicle assembly building or vab And when they were putting it together in the 60s and everybody was reading their Life magazine um, to, to, you know, find out all about the astronauts and the space program and how to be a good American and so on, um, Life magazine sent people to, to go photograph the VAB because it's like one of the biggest buildings in the world by the space it has inside of it. And 
the Life magazine photographers were like, oh, well, we're, we're Life magazine. We know how to make people understand the scale of it. There's no way to understand the scale of the vehicle assembly building because it's surrounded by marsh. So, like, there's nothing big enough there that you can, like, adequately use to get the size of it. And watching blockbusters in the present moment is kind of like photographing the VAB. Like, everything just seems so big, but you also don't have a sense of the scale of it at all. Jurassic Park has figured out that particular problem. Like, it's one thing to say there are dinosaurs in our movies and everybody's like, oh yeah, dinosaurs, we love those because they're cool. I mean, this is, this is not controversial. I'm trying to decide if it's the least controversial thing I've ever said, that dinosaurs are cool. That's got to be pretty high, right? Um, offhand, yeah, probably is the least controversial. I'm going to try and think of something, but like, this is a truth we take to be self-evident. Yeah, so, so dinosaurs are great. And like, obviously, it's if you've seen the other Jurassic whatever movies, it is not just enough to have people try to, like, shoot the dinosaurs, and I mean shoot with a camera as opposed to shoot with all manner of other things, which is part of the problem with the other dinosaur movies. I digress. But you can't just put them in there and have people expect to say, like, oh, these are so cool, these are wonderful. You have to build it. You have to set it up. And I thought about including one of the moments where Dr. Grant is looking the dinosaurs in the eye, essentially. So, like, that, the famous moment um, where the score is, like, doing the that wonderful Jurassic uh, Park theme, and Dr. Grant's eyes get real big, big and he looks at this Brachiosaurus um, and its mate that are, like, walking along, and he's like, oh, my God. Like, that's what it means to photograph the VAB. Show us somebody with the wonder of it, build it with the music, contextualize it, make it magical. Because, again, dinosaurs, magic, not hard to figure out. And, like, that's what's so wonderful about Jurassic Park, is that over and over again, it finds a way to contextualize the dinosaurs to make them not just like, oh, this is a really cool thing to see on my screen, but, like, this is maybe the coolest thing in the history of movies, which, if you judge off of the box office for for this movie, it, uh, the the returns may may well prove that. Um, so that's that's my basic spiel about Jurassic Park, a film which I think is about as perfect as a blockbuster that has ever existed. Um, it is certainly a little more controversial for me to say that this is Spielberg's best movie than it is to say that dinosaurs are cool. But I stand by it. I just, I just think this is wonderful in every way. It manages to, to layer in little hints of romance. It has kids, but the kids aren't that annoying, which is like a miracle. Um, I love the, the sort of goofy stuff they get away with. The scenes with the dinosaurs are genuinely terrifying the first time around. Jeff Goldblum is so horny. It has multiple little asides um, with multiple characters. I mean, Laura Dern in, with with uh, Richard Attenborough in that one scene is incredible. Just, like, I defy anyone to tell me about parts of this movie that don't work. Um, as always, respect to Laura Dern, which anytime she comes up, I'm 
probably going to say that on the podcast. Love her. Uh, I think the least controversial thing you've ever said is that Jeff Goldblum is so horny. There is just a shocking amount of sexual tension within, roiling within that man. Um, <laughs> and it's, the, it's an the interesting... The belt buckle isn't just DNA or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I miss the days when Jeff Goldblum could be at the center of our blockbusters and our action movies. I just I just miss that. I don't understand how that was possible, but it was, and obviously the world was better for it. Okay, so I think we have some, some time to play with here because Jurassic Park literally people, needs no introduction. Get it. So can I ask a couple questions that like stem from the movie? Yes, yes. Okay, well, first I want to say I really thought the Oceana Roll moment was going to be the see nobody cares from Wayne Knight. Love that moment. Um, it's not actually the Oceana Roll, but I laugh every time. Um, so let's start. Okay, the first one, I suppose. Why don't I get Jeff Goldblum, Tim? Maybe you can explain him in the context of this movie, but like, I never react to him in the same way that like everyone else seems to and I don't know what I'm not getting I think it's just I think it's a level of like reflexive goofiness which I mean I don't know that he's commenting on his own persona so much um, though I think that there's something there in the big chill where he's like sort of acting the person that he looks like but there's something Go ahead. No, I was, uh, Big Chill makes sense. I think that's truer now, but I don't know about that in 93. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. I think in 93, there's something, there's like a comment on, I don't know, maybe it is that somebody who looks like Jeff Goldblum, who is like good looking, but not, you know, classically good looking, um, is supposed to be this sex pot mathematician, which again is not necessarily your, uh, your typical phrase, uh, to say the least. Um, some, I, I just feel like in this movie, he is the only one who doesn't have to play it straight all the time to make it work. Um, and of course, Sam Neill is so good at playing it straight. And I think Laura Dern is always very good at being earnest and, and playing it straight up. Um, and it, it, Jeff Goldblum is fully taking on the comic relief here in a movie that is just scary and just tense enough to sort of require us to, to laugh a little bit. Um, I mean, just sort of watching him, watching him play second fiddle in doing it, I think is really effective. And, and this is part of the problem with The Lost World, um, which is just like, it's just not a good movie. But like putting him in the front seat and expecting him to to do some of the sillier stuff while also being the serious lead doesn't work very well, but he is, he is role-playing his little part to bits. Um, and I guess that there's something, I guess we'll think of it this way. It's like saying life finds a way is sort of dull, but life uh, finds a way is, is just, it's got a little bit more pizzazz, just a little bit extra something, something in there. Maybe that's the the gold bloom it is is the ah uh, is is what makes the <laughs> what makes the role.
I, that makes some sense. Maybe it's like, I feel like he becomes front and center of too many narratives. And like, I need him to be in that kind of side, play, that role player place um, where that's not like aggressively the thing that people want to focus on. Like, in Thor Ragnarok, which is a movie I like, and I don't think you particularly care about, but, like, I don't really care what Goldblum is up to in that movie. Like, there's so much other stuff that I'm interested in, but I feel like he became kind of a thing in that. Um, but anyway, that makes some sense. So that's me admitting to our audience that I probably just don't get someone that a lot of people love, but whatever. That's sort of our shtick, I suppose. Um, yeah. I will say that the life finds a way and your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, that they didn't stop to think that they should. Both of them have taken on a much larger life in the popular discourse than, than usual. But my personal favorite light line of his is when he's in the back of that Jeep and he see, or, and he sees the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex bearing down and there's that shot of like objects are closer and mirror than they appear and he's like, must go faster, and like, that's my favorite thing he says in this movie, because it is indisputably true that they must go faster. I love the shot of the side mirror, too. Like, that's an inspired choice. So oh. clever. So clever. To be, cl- to be clear, I think he's good in this movie. I really like him in The Fly, too. That's, oh. that's just a, like, oh, yeah. yeah, tangential thing about Goldblum. Um, so the other, I'll combine two things into one here. I suppose one is more a comment, anyway. Um, we'll start with that. The, all right, so the latest Godzilla series, um, which I'm a big fan of, I don't know that, I think one of them is genuinely good, at least two of them probably, but like good or not, isn't really the question to me. Like, I think they are fun blockbuster spectacles. Um, and that's what makes me happy. Um, so similar to Jurassic Park in that way, um, but I think the so the the reboot of that came out in or the first one was what 2014 16 somewhere in there 14, um, right, yeah. 14 yeah what the thing I love about that movie is you see pieces literally pieces of Godzilla like you see him through windows or you see like the end of his tail or you just see some scale like he's not shown to you until near the end of the movie and like that's able to create the sense of size of scale of danger um that to me is just so sublime really like i love that about that movie to me that's kind of an oceana roll moment the first time you see godzilla in full then because this like they've taken time to really set up the scale um so i think that's kind of similar to what happens with the dinosaurs here um not the exact same but like I get a similar feeling from that anyway, like that kind of just grand majesty of it all and and the scariness of it too. Um, like you're able to imagine yourself in that scale, which is a completely, like that's really hard to do and completely different endeavor. Um, so to that point, I wonder thinking about blockbusters similar to right. How the shop around the corner doesn't reimagine a romantic comedy, but really takes us down to like, this is the essential element of what happens at the end of these. Like we're going to, we're going to pare that down and like get to the essential thing 
which is fairly simple. Um, I'm not suggesting dinosaurs are simple, but like, does Jurassic Park reset blockbusters in a way in 93? Um, I guess I mean this in two ways. One, do you think it like creates a new type of blockbuster that people are going to try and do afterwards for better or both or for better or worse? Um, and two, do you think right in this Oceana roll moment that it kind of strips back a, a lot of window dressing, shall we say? And like the central element is that size and that spectacle and like the wonder that seeing like the thing for the first time creates like is it do you think it does that in the same way as shop around the corner plays with the romantic comedy thing i think that as far as resetting i think it it was it was certainly possible to make a giant hit without having giant stars and that was true for jaws which had, like, famous people, but, like, when they made that movie, Robert Shaw was the most famous guy in it, which is sort of an interesting thought. And then E.T., of course, is an enormous hit, even though, like, come on, like, Henry Thomas is leading that movie next to a puppet. But, like, then then you have Jurassic Park, which I think sort of turns things, in that, like you said, the spectacle of something can be enough to bring people in without having the giant person leading the charge. So, like, I think that there's certainly a mixture in your 80s movies. Like, um, I'm pretty sure Last Crusade is, like, the biggest grossing movie of the 80s, and, like, part of that is, okay, it's another Indiana Jones movie. Everybody wants to see one of those, but also it's got Harrison Ford and Sean Connery, who are, like, you know, how much bigger can you get? Um... And then, of course, Batman makes a, a buttload of money. And, and like, not like Michael Keaton is obscure or anything. Not like Jack Nicholson is obscure. But, I, I mean, people are going to that primarily for, like, a Batman image as opposed to, like, you know, I think, I think Jack Nicholson is who I need to see precisely um, on the screen. So I don't know. I don't know that I... Like, it's really tempting for me to say that that in the 80s you needed a person, but in the 90s you needed a concept, a big enough concept to draw people in. I just, I'm not sure that's wrong, necessarily. Like, unless you're Steven Spielberg, you kind of needed giant stars to do it. And Spielberg in the 90s, for the third straight decade, makes a, makes a movie without anyone who's necessarily a huge name. Like, like, Attenborough at this point is, like, better known as the guy who directed Gandhi than, like, the guy who's this wonderful actor in, in all those 40s and 50s British films. And in, by 93, and without the benefit of serious home video, like, what does that matter? Um, Goldblum, Laura Dern, Sam Neill, all, all relatively smaller, like, they're not, they're not Tom Cruise. There is not a Tom Cruise or an Arnold Schwarzenegger in that bunch. Um... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted. I mean, there's certainly not an Eddie Murphy. Maybe that's another way to put it. Um, that there's just like, there's not a big enough person that you can point to and say, this person could open it. But the fact that Spielberg had sort of, had made movies that were 
almost as big as Jurassic Park at that point um, and still opened them to enormous success sort of shows that maybe he was the, the star who you could get things to, to go with anyway. So yeah, that's sort of what I'm interested in because I don't think in the 90s we fully got there, certainly. Like, big names still sold movies. Like, Will Smith was a bankable name on a marquee for a while. Like, we wanted Brendan Fraser to be co- to be there. I still want that. Um, like you are saying, Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise, like those names can still get butts in seats at that point and still do largely, I think. But I think now we're more in a space of not that famous people aren't in these movies, but like the dinosaurs, so to speak, sell the movie more than whatever name is on the poster. Um, or if you're interested in the, the content or the spectacle or the thing, like the dinosaur, or the transformer or the superhero or whatever it is, a lot of thoughts on the internet about who plays those various things, obviously, but like, I do think now it's certainly the like, that part of the movie sells it more. Um, yeah, again, that's sort of a, I don't think totally off topic, but sort of tangential, just kind of Jurassic Park musing, I suppose. Well, I mean, once again, it's not as if, it's not as if we need to explain the plot of Jurassic Park to people. Um, I imagine people are playing Jurassic Park frame for frame in their heads as we are, as we are talking. And well, they might, you know, because once again, one of the, one of the great American movies ever full stop by one of the, one of the great American directors. Oceana roll moment for this. I guess, I guess it's predictable if I've already talked about Dr. Grant looking around and seeing them, uh, what I'm going to go with here, but good to go. All right. So dinosaurs ate everyone. At this point, everyone who is left, um, everyone who is going to, to survive this this very bad 24, 36 hour period, whatever, um, is getting on the hop on the on the helicopter. That quiet Jurassic Park music is playing, so the piano version of it, as opposed to the part with the with the horns and the strings and all that. Um, and Dr. Grant, we see his face again. He's got the two kids like draped over him. He has proved to Laura Dern that he can be someone's dad, which, I mean, is all any, any uh, red-blooded American male or Kiwi male, in his, in his case, may have ever wanted. Um, and he, he looks out the window of the helicopter. It's the same idea as seeing the Brachiosaurus before, but what he sees out the window instead are pelicans. And there's this little, this little like, flock of pelicans outside the window. And to me, this is like, in terms of what it does for the movie, this is the, I think this, this shot is single-handedly what sells me for, for Jurassic Park over Raiders, because the idea here is so wise and so, I don't know, it's so small. Like, again, this is a very simple thing, and the movie's not, like, saying to you, remember that dinosaurs are birds and birds are dinosaurs and vice versa. Like it's not, it's, it's done the work already. It's already told you about it. But the way Dr. Grant looks at these, at these pelicans and thinks there were already dinosaurs all around us. We just had to like be thoughtful enough and curious enough and imaginative enough to see it. Um, it, it really is this kind of like quiet piano hymn to the power of your own imagination and the power of human intelligence to connect the dots. Um, 
and and human intelligence in this movie has already made so many mistakes. Um, this is one of the great anti-scientism movies of all time, which I, I'm very thankful for. It's a wonderful thing to be anti-scientism. Um, but it's a it's this very lovely moment about appreciating what's in front of you and appreciating the world that you have and and understanding I mean not just like a blind appreciation, but this is a scientist, somebody who wants to know more about a natural world and someone who looks at them and maybe thinks, maybe I haven't been giving enough of my you know, of my appreciation and of my um of my thoughts to the dinosaurs that were in our world already. Um, that instead of reaching for a very, very dead past and approaching it as cynically as possible and thinking, how can I make, you know, this resurrection of a dead past more profitable than a, than a hundred Disney worlds? Um, how can I, how can I look at this and just sort of from a distance appreciate that the pelicans were the dinosaurs that, that I never thought about before. How many times has, has Dr. Grant looked at a bird, let alone something as, you know, as beautiful as a pelican. Um, and just sort of like, let it go and not think, you know, this is the same kind of stuff I'm trying to dig up, um, dig up out in Wyoming. To me, that's, and this is another ending one. I'm, I'm sort of upset with myself that I have two, two endings as opposed to another one that's like the original Oceana role, which is like in the second half, but not the end at all. Chaplin stays undefeated, I guess. But that's the, that's the moment from this movie, which I think is truly ineffable. There is something about the callback to the original shot with Dr. Grant and the, the Brachiosaurs. And then this newer, wiser, parent, as it were, kind of making a better decision and, and reasoning things out as opposed to wishing so hard. Um, not that it was his fault that the dinosaurs existed again, um, but there is there is a more sensible person on the other side of it. Um, and, and that is always, not always, I'm actually, I'm going to take that back. That didn't strike me until I was three or four readings of this one in, you know, like, I had to see this one once and then I had to see it again. And then I had to like get to it a third or fourth time. And then finally say, this is, this is not just a really good ending, but it's a really beautiful statement as well. Yeah. I don't know that I have much to add there. I, I started wondering in a way that I guess I passively had before, but not really until this moment, like how much the story is an allegory for the bomb. Um, for nuclear energy. Um, I mean, I think there's a fairly, fairly straightforward reading there, but yeah, I mean, I really like that moment of, I don't like, I guess I like a lot of things about it, but the inversion of right. Seeing the dinosaurs for the first time is so spectacular, but also there's just as much beauty to be found in a bird that could be around you every day. Um, like right, re reconnecting with that sort of curiosity about the world around you, and that want to to be with it rather than trying to play god of a mysterious past. It's also a very different emotion, I think, than what we usually get at the end of a a thriller, an action movie, 
something with horror in it, whatever genre you want to put on this. Um, there are so many of those movies that that end with like a feeling of like accomplishment or you know, you're supposed to feel good at the end of it, but you're also supposed to like still have a little bit of hype around yourself. And there's something so peaceful about this one. Like this this really does aim for an entirely different part of your brain or your gut or wherever you think the movies are supposed to aim. Um, it's aiming for you to, to feel calmer, quieter, more serene. And and I think that in itself is also just a wonderful choice um, to, to end a movie that has been for, I don't know, how long is this? Like two hours? Like for two hours, this movie has been absolutely off the chain. Action, action, action. Always something going on. I mean, even the, even the, the, the stuff with Wayne Knight, you know, it's like, it's fairly tense stuff. Um, even when he's not being eaten by Dilophosaurs, I mean, he's in, he's engaged in corporate espionage with, with James Bond equipment. Like, even the funny stuff is, is pretty taut. And then at the end, there's, there really is an intentional choice to end it with a moment of peace and acceptance as opposed to, like, triumph or, or joy or something, something that I think is a little bit more fleeting. All right, ready to, to do the spiel aspect? Right. I think so, let's do it. All right, let's do it. So, the very oddly named, but basically about ineffable moments in movies theme for this week, The Oceana Roll, comes from the AFI movie... Uh, the Gold Rush, directed by Charlie Chaplin, and of course starring Charlie Chaplin in, you guessed it, The Gold Rush, uh, in which his character goes a-prospecting in the Klondike during the very real, very deadly uh, Klondike Gold Rush at the turn of the century. It's a movie that has a lot that goes right for it. There's a lot of funny stuff. There's a lot of stuff that really makes us sit uh, sit there and think and, and feel some pity for this poor guy. Um but the sort of loveliest, simplest moment is one in which he performs the Oceana roll with forks and dinner rolls and, and turns that into a really gorgeous event. And the two films that I had up that sort of replicate that feeling um, of simplicity and beauty in something which, you know, just requires easy camera work, close-ups, um, shot reaction shots, just like really basic stuff. Uh, the first one is Ernst Lubitsch's 1940 romantic comedy, kind of a drama in some places, The Shop Around the Corner, a film in which there is a lot of personal angst, a lot of personal tragedy, a lot of disappointment, um, which has to do not just with the main characters, but even going out into the supporting characters. There's a lot of, of unhappiness in the Christmas season, which I think is very relatable. While the world around you seems to be joyful, there are individuals who are suffering a great deal. And at the end of that movie, after a lot of Sturm and Drang for Clara in particular, who has has sort of been yo-yoed from place to place, not really knowing where her future is, um, half being interested in Krolik and, and half wanting to marry her pen pal, um, sort of being pulled in different directions... Krolik, who has been alternately cruel and weird to her, <laughs> to put it lightly, um, gives her gives her a way to reject him the same way that he rejected her earlier when he takes that carnation out and shows her that she's 
been the per or um, she's been writing to him all along, even when he pretended that wasn't the case. And then in Jurassic Park, a film which has dinosaurs, uh, a movie which is constantly on the go, um, a movie in which a T Rex can sneak into in a, a giant room and it makes sense because you two are so caught up in what the velociraptors are doing with our heroes um where you kind of you just kind of buy it it's that kind of wonderful fake movie it's also a movie that ends with this moment of acceptance and in peace and in which people become wiser by looking at pelicans out the window of a helicopter, escaping from an island with, I'll just, I'll just say it one more time, with, with many hungry dinosaurs, you know, where <laughs> there are a great many of critters who want to nom each other and to nom the, the tasty, tasty humans, um, let the cannibalism run free in, in this section, I guess. But they, they get out of this moment or the, this day, day and a half, where, where there has been terror and fear and excitement and dinosaurs. And what they have at the end is the dinosaurs of our present. These pelicans who are there for us to see and admire and to try to learn about. And that is what a wiser, more judicious person would do rather than bring back these dangerous dead animals for, for pure profit. And there's something about that that final sequence, the way that it mirrors the the original shot of Dr. Grant seeing his dinosaurs and then seeing his modern dinosaurs, that I think is just done so brilliantly. So, Shop Around the Corner or Jurassic Park? Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You will, ha- you will absolutely have your chance, though I am sort of worried about whatever goes up against it at this point. Well, I, uh, I mean... I don't know that that's totally unfair, but I'm also just doing it because <laughs> it was fun to imagine it in this I mean, episode. I've, I've, been, <laughs> so, I've been worried. What was that? I've been worried. I've I've been concerned about that one for a long time, but I can't not have it on the list. I, I, I you know, it is. I I like that movie very much, but part of it is put upon just or, or put on rather because of just imagining it with the shop around the corner is funny. Um, okay. But in more seriousness, this one's hard. I feel like you're going to be sad either way, oh, I which I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I should delight in that because of what you've been doing to me historically. Um, I've talked myself into and out of both of these, I suppose that's not the best way to put it. I've talked myself into both of these at various points. Um, and I'm going to go with the shop around the corner. And I'm going to go with it because of having also like the gold rush, the Oceana roll moment in the midst of a time that people outside of that particular setting could feel very differently about, right? So the gold rush is like, you know, it's exciting and adventurous and and there's wealth on the horizon when really it's a miserable, lonely, separated time um, where you have to worry about where you're getting any food at all um, or just basic resources that you have or your your house falling off a cliff, perhaps. Um, Right, and what you were saying about 
are kind of having this miserable time around the holidays where it should be very exciting and happy and like these are good times but um there's a lot of loneliness and hurt and you know some desperation here too like uh, and we have that oceana roll moment in the midst of all of that um i guess that like right now anyway like that's the connection that's like that puts me slightly over the edge but i feel like this is an episode that if we did it again tomorrow i might well pick jurassic park um so shop around the corner by a nose i suppose or by a claw maybe i am looking at the um at the list of movies that have gotten in and obviously um carpenter and malik both had like multiple multiple bites at this apple i think lubich is the third director to get two movies on here um i think my math may be i hope my math is right on this but I think I think so far he is the the third one to get a double entry, and he is he is very richly deserving, seeing as they didn't put his movies on the actual AFI list uh, the way that they put Spielberg movies on the actual AFI list. So I guess I guess there's there's nothing to be sorry about there. Um, I forgot I had chosen to be or not to be way back when. Um, so yeah, did not realize this was Lubitsch's second until just now. <laughs> yes, I mean. Then and that one also defeated a dinosaur movie because there were suicide condors in the in the movie that it that it took out, um, which is an interesting connection. I, you know, at the end of this, if we have a moment of like, you know, I go through the movies list and get to like replace one, and you go through the music list and get to replace one in retrospect. I don't know what can beat the suicide condors, but anyway. All right, so if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, what if this were about music instead, then you could consider this potentially with uh, the part one of this episode in which Matt talks about in the airplane over the sea. Uh, you will hear that I did say airplane and not airplane. I was good. I behaved. Um, that was part one of this episode. If you're interested in that or in other episodes of this podcast, if you would like to see his blog, my blog, if you would like to see his Spotify, my letterboxed, if you are interested in like an about me section in which we talk about who we are, why we do this and, and what kind of dumb stuff we've done in the past. Uh, you can find all of that at subtitlespodcast.com. All of that information is waiting there for you. We will see you next time.